So I want to start with a, a thought out, outside the text that we'll bring in. Um, for anyone who's ever served in the armed services, whether soldier, sailor, airman, uh, particularly those who en- enlist into the armed services, one of the chief defining moments for them uh, kind of in their walk in the military is boot camp, basic training. And, you know, each service has their own, but there's an awful lot of commonalities. And sometimes you'll hear on the news or a politician say something like, uh, man, those soldiers are America's finest. And the truth of the matter is they're not really. They're actually a cross-section of America. So, in, in fact, basic training does not have your reputation of recruiting America's finest. Uh... In fact, large portion of the military is comprised of people below what you would consider the average line of American society. Uh, and and I, can, I can say that, I suppose. Uh, it's, I always remark of, of um, how, much, uh, how much the military is the American dream for some people. You know, so the military is built on people who, not, who were valedictorians in high school, but who barely made it out of high school. Uh, and I say that because at some point, all throughout America's history, uh, those kinds of people have done heroic things. Heroic, amazing things. And I'm actually more interested in asking that question. How does uh, a group of people who are at best an even-handed cross-section of our, of our country, how do they coalesce in such a way as to do really remarkable things? And... I'm going to share with you one of the secrets, and it is boot camp. Basic training is the methodical act of breaking someone's individuality down uh, and then building them back up as a team. That's what, that's what basic training is, kind of the heart of basic training, is through pressure, difficulty, sarcasm, hostility, persecution, those sorts of forces, you uh, reduce the individual uh, to the bare minimum. And then through pressure, difficulty, sarcasm, hostility, persecution, you rebuild the team. Under the same pressures, you rebuild the team into something quite remarkable. So that if you, if you, if you read uh, or listen to someone who's done something heroic in the military, very, very often uh, when they describe their motive, it's not the mission, it's not patriotism, it's their, their brothers and sisters in arms is what's motivating them. Because they have a shared fate. That's... That's really, when it's done well, in a good environment, when it's done well, uh, the military creates a group of people who share the same fate with one another. And it's out of that that really, really remarkable things happen. It's amazing what someone will do for someone else when you think of them as a brother or sister. And it's this idea, this idea is going to be really thick in the story today. Uh, but I wanted to start, uh, and maybe in a at least an observably familiar place, before going to the word. Um, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah today. First uh, and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. 
If you get to Psalms, page back a little bit, or use the table of contents, or use your phone, just put it on silent. Feels like every Sunday somebody's reading along with me. Uh, We've been working through the idea of ministry. We've been talking about ministry for four weeks now. The idea of ministry, and we've been using images of God's buildings or the way God builds his kingdom as sort of the, the lens through which to understand this. So week one, we looked at the building of the tabernacle, and this is what we said about ministry. God wants us to give freely of our best according to his design. That was week one. Week two, we looked at the Temple of Solomon and all of its adornment and fancy array. And we observed about ministry that the uh, ornateness of the structure of ministry is far less important to the Lord than the root, which is righteousness and holiness. That the church should remain concerned and focused on being righteous and not say, well, look at our elaborate ministry. Look at what we got in the hallway. That alone carries nothing. In fact, it might carry idols if we lose the sinner. That was week two. Week three, we, uh, right, well, week two, we saw how the temple went from a great idea to uh, something that was marked for destruction. And week three, we looked at the exiles, the Hebrew exiles, who coming back to Israel 70 years later and Uh, getting ready to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed, we looked at kind of what it means to lay a foundation, right? And we said the foundation of God's kingdom is sits on the rock of Jesus. It's another way of saying like the worship of the Lord, if it, it, once again, if it's out of the center, the church is no longer on a firm foundation. And we talked about last week how uh, the pattern of worship on Sunday what I would say is all three hours of what we do here, the pattern of worship on Sunday marks the proper pattern for what a Christian should do throughout the week. So we ought to exemplify corporately what we would hope you would do individually. That's that's a basic thought. Well, today we're going to pick up in Nehemiah and the story of Nehemiah is taking place another 70 or 80 years after the laying of the foundation of the second temple from last week. So there's a good chance that Nehemiah was not yet even alive when the first group of Hebrews were sent back to Israel to start rebuilding the temple. Okay, He may have been very, very young or not, not, uh, not born yet at all. And uh, so we're going to pick up with him, and he's actually going to be not in Jerusalem. The story's not going to start in Jerusalem. The story's going to start actually in the capital of the Persian Empire, where Nehemiah serves as a member of the nobility. He's a Jew who serves before the emperor of Persia as his cupbearer. And we're going to sort of zip through chapters one and two till we can get to three and really settle in, but... Here's the first three verses of chapter one. It says the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province 
who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Okay, so here's Nehemiah. He's a God-fearing Hebrew who has, did not go home when the exiles returned, but rather was part of a fam, number of families that stayed scattered throughout the land. So he's remained, and his friends, people he knows, are returning from the land of Judah, and he sort of asks excitedly, hey, tell me, tell me about it. How's it going over there? And his friend kind of responds with, you don't want to know. Like, it's a disaster. It's a disaster. Like, we are the most humble of all people. Well, the rest of chapter 1 is uh, an account of the way that Nehemiah goes to the Lord. So he weeps, he uh, fasts, he prays to the Lord, Lord, if there's any way at all that you would have me, your servant, play a role in the restoration of Jerusalem, uh, I would be your willing instrument. Please, Lord, give me a way with the emperor. Give me a way to speak into his ear in such a way that changes our fate. And that happens. One day, Nehemiah is serving his cupbearer before the king, and the king says to him, Nehemiah, you look sad. Why are you so sad? And Nehemiah says, I'm sad because of what I've learned about my people, that Jerusalem is in disarray and, and the walls are rubble. And the king says to Nehemiah, well, what do you want to do about it? And Nehemiah says, I want to go. I want to go home. I want to help them rebuild the walls. And the king says, how long will you be, be, be gone from me? And Nehemiah says, I'll be gone this amount of time. And the king says, go, Nehemiah, go and rebuild God's blessings on you. In fact, you go with not only my blessings, but my authority. And by the way, here's a grant for some supplies to do it. And Nehemiah gets to go home to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And when we pick up here in chapter 2, verse 9, it's, uh, it's about at the time that Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem. So verse 9 in chapter 2, he says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So the moment that Nehemiah arrives and people learn of his intent, conflict happens. As long as Israel is in disarray and is, as long as Israel is unremarkable, nobody cares. But the moment that there's a sense of where they're going to rebuild, reestablish themselves, become a people, well, that is alarming to a lot of other people in the area who have grown kind of accustomed to the Jews in Israel not having any, any kind of notoriety. In fact, if you're ever wondering... In the New Testament, you know how Jews and Samaritans don't get along? Well, it's right here. Sanballat is a Samaritan. This is where the conflict starts. So Sanballat is alarmed because of what Nehemiah might do. So what's going to happen in 11 through 16 is Nehemiah is going to walk through the rubble of the city at night. He's going to go on a stroll and kind of observe the chaos and then in verse 17, this is what he's going to say. Then I said to them, he's speaking to uh, Jewish leaders, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. 
And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. You can see the conflict. The people of God are building in contested territory. It's just as a good starting point here. I want us to appreciate, appreciate this is a reality that happens both individually in your own life in Christ and also corporately, which is the basic notion that if you just think of your soul or your being, your being is contested ter- territory. And as long as you're not growing in the Lord, as long as you're not worrying about the Lord, well, the enemy doesn't have much to worry about. You're just fine. If, if you are sort of drifting along as a lukewarm follower of Jesus, well, you're doing no harm to any. Satan is just perfectly happy with you in mediocrity. It's when you actually, when the Lord actually starts claiming territory in you that the enemy gets concerned. Right? Here's the passage. You've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son he loves. That's warfare. That's warfare. And it's true both individually and corporately. It, a, church that's, a church that's in decline or that has almost no heartbeat or that has no effect on its community, well, you know what? The enemy is perfectly happy with a church like that. In fact, it serves as an excellent false testimony to the goodness of God. Why would the enemy thwart that? It's when a church really starts to exhibit the nature of God that it's a problem. I just want us to appreciate that actual developing holiness causes conflict with the enemy. We shouldn't be surprised. Okay, let's keep reading. Now, I am going to only read an excerpt from chapter 3. And the reason is, is because the idea in chapter 3 is really, really special. There's a sublime statement being made in the third chapter, but it's lost in the briar patch of tedious detail. So if I were to read the whole chapter, you would not come back to church again, okay? But if I only read a verse, you wouldn't see it. So I'm gonna read about six verses. I pick six verses out of the middle of the chapter, but what comes before it is the same as it, and what comes after it is the same. The whole chapter is the same, okay? So I'm gonna read about six or so verses, it's a tiny part, but it typifies the whole. And this is, the, the basic subject is a description of how the people of God rebuild, begin to rebuild the wall. So I'm going to pick up in verse 6. And I'm not going to say all the fancy names because uh, it would get in the way. Uh, you would judge me. So I'm going to kind of, I hope you'll give me the grace of kind of simplifying the names uh, so that we don't, so that you can maybe get to the what's really going on here. So verse 6 of Nehemiah 3, it says this, J, the son of P, 
and M, the son of B, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired M, the G, and J, the M, the men of Gibeon and of Mishpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, you, the son of H, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, H, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them are the son of H, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, J, the son of H, repaired the opposite, his house. Next to him, H, the son of H, repaired. M, the son of H, and H, the son of P, slash M, repaired another section of the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, S, the son of H, the ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Okay, the whole chapter is that way. The whole chapter is that way. What it's a description of, you might imagine, imagine the writer of Nehemiah sitting on the highest place in the city, looking out of the city, and starting at a gate. Okay, pick a gate of the city. The gate had 10 gates, I think. And he starts there and he says, these people repaired that gate. Next to them, they worked on the wall. Next to them, they worked on the wall. Next to them, they worked on the wall. And imagine the author just going all the way around in a circle, all the way around the city of Jerusalem, describing all of the work that all of the people did on all of the wall and all of the gates. That's the third chapter. So here's the question. Who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem? Was it skilled craftsmen? Was it masons and stone cutters from Egypt? No. It was the clans and the families of Israel. It was, let me just say it this way, it was just and only the regular families and clans of Israel. Meaning, if you're here, imagine you and your family, you had a section of wall. Just imagine what it would look like. I mean, there were some professionals here, but they weren't professional masons. So there's a goldsmith. What a waste of talent. There's a perfumer rebuilding the wall. There's a guy and it says he and his sons and daughters built the wall. Like daughters in here, does that sound fun? Like it's everybody. We should appreciate this. It's really quite a remarkable image. Everybody has a shared fate. A stake in the wall because they have a shared fate. Half a wall is no wall at all. A wall only works when it's all the wall. And so everybody has assigned them all around them. They have a shared fate and everybody has their own portion for which they're responsible and their various gates for which they're responsible. And this, this is such an excellent image, just an excellent image of the people of God that it's we together in a shared fate build, we comprise the city of God. And you might say to me, well, I'm not a skilled builder. It doesn't matter. You might say, well, I'm not gifted in that. I'm gifted in that. I'd say, you still have a section of the wall. Everyone has a section of the wall. This, this image and this idea of a shared fate that you and I and the Bible's full of these ideas of you and I sharing fate. We are members of one body. What is that, right? 
We are brothers and sisters of the same family. We have been adopted. We were strangers who have been adopted into one family. We now belong to a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Do you see all these images of shared faith, of co-belonging, of interdependence? How is it that we have an obligation one to another? It's because we have the same God and we have a shared faith. I think it's important that we remember that God wants us to mature beyond the very simple notion that Jesus loves you and died for you as an individual. I'd say that's true, but it's the starting point. But he, wants, he ultimately wants us to mature past that. In fact, we might say this, God begins, God might begin with you in mind, but he ultimately has others in mind. He works through you to get to others because we have a shared fate together. Just think for a second. It's because it's, it's an excellent picture of ministry, okay? Think about what walls, how a wall establishes a city, okay? Because we are a city on a hill, aren't we? Is that not what we are? We're a shared fate image. We're a city on a hill. So what does a wall do? A wall, oh, what a wall says is, Everything on the inside of the wall is distinct from things that are on the outside of the wall, right? The inside of the wall is organized. Outside the wall is disorganized or wild. But inside the wall is governed and safe. Outside the wall is dangerous. Inside the wall is, uh, is, uh, is, is well-ordered. That's, that's what the people of God do for one another. And the wall has gates. And so there's this, there's this distinction from life outside the city and life inside the city by the wall. But the gates are there as a way of inviting people. You want to come into this? Come into this. The, wall, the gates provide for the city to be safe and welcoming. That's us. That's us. That's us as long as we know that you and I have a shared faith together. Half a wall does nothing. As long as you and I know we have a shared faith together and that we're the city of God. Because this ultimately is contested territory. I won't spend much time on this, but I will ask the question, what do you think your section of wall would look like? Wouldn't it be a bummer if you were stuck next to a real mason? You know, you like look up at his section, you know, and he's like pointing the rocks and you're over your section and they just keep falling off. And I, I, I mean, it's a little bit comical, but it's worth thinking about that because you're like, did God really want me to build a section of the wall? The answer is yes. More than anything, he wants you to build a section of the wall. You're thinking... Is that crazy? God wants you to share in the joy of building a section of his wall. All of you. Because we have a shared fate and we have a common Lord. Okay, let's look at this next reading. So that's chapter three. So we jump to chapter four. I'm just gonna read the first six verses. 
Now when Samballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? I love this question. Will they revive the stones out of a heap of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, by the way, Tobiah is like a sidekick, okay? He said, yeah, what are they building? If a fox goes up on the hill, he'll break it down and break down their stone wall. You see what I'm saying? He's a trash talker. <laughs> so Nehemiah goes to the Lord in prayer in verse four. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked your, you to anger in the presence of the builders. Verse six, so we built the wall and all the wall was joined together half its height for the people had a mind to work. So there's this, the moment they start to build, the heckling starts. The ridicule, the jeering, the back pressure, the you just the the rest of the community, the the moment you came, some for you, the moment you came to the Lord, the rest of your family started asking questions. Okay, some of you know that. Some of you know the moment moment you started changing your life according to the Lord. As long as you were a lame Christian Friday night out with the boys, you're fine. The moment you started like actually changing the way you spoke and hung out and where you. That's when people start going, why, why are you the same? You used to be fun. You used to, what, you used to be, why aren't you, right? That's when it happens. That's when it happens. And so they're building and they're setting themselves to the work and yet the, the wall is only like half its height. And you have these questions. What are these feeble Jews doing? Do you think they can do this alone? you think they're actually going to sacrifice? you think they're actually going to finish the project? That's what Sam Ballard says. And he asked this great question. This to me is a prophetic question. This is to me when the Lord has out of the mouth of his very enemies the very truth of God. He says, will they revive the stones out of a heap of rubbish? That to me is all God ever does. It's all he ever does. You and I, our stones revived out of a heap of rubbish. And he uses us. The whole Bible is this story of God grabbing what ought not be and doing something quite remarkable with it. So he says to Abraham and Sarah, go to the place that I'll show you and I'm gonna bless you so richly. The whole world will be blessed through you, barren Abraham and Sarah. I'm gonna revive you out of the heap of ashes. This is what he does with the Jews. They're prisoners, they're slaves in Egypt, oppressed slaves in Egypt. He could have turned to another people group, but because of his promises, he turns to discarded rubble and pulls them out of Egypt and makes them his own people. This is what he does to the spies in Jericho. Through Rahab the harlot, he saves them out. All through, all through, this is what he does with the exiles. They're exiles who, because of his goodness, he sends them back into the land and commissions them to build the city. The whole Bible is this way. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. You know what the prophets say? Oh, you Bethlehem, though you're the least of these, out of you will come a king who will shepherd my people in Israel. That's Micah. The apostles, they're not professionals. They're fishermen. The Gospel of Matthew is written by a tax collector. 
Priscilla and Aquila, tent makers. When you read the New Testament, they are pivotal both in the church in Rome and in the church in Corinth and in the church in Ephesus. That is remarkable. The church in Philippi exists in large part because of a lady named Lydia. The letter of Romans that we cherish was delivered by a woman named Phoebe. It's God only builds, only builds with rocks out of the rubble. This is where I think the stone which the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone and you and I are living stones of rubble that have been revived, revived out of the pile. It's, it's such a wonderful, this is where I would say, do you really think that you're supposed to be building the wall? I'd say anything else would not sound like the story of God. Of course you should be. God's kingdom has always been built on amateur, half-height wall builders. It's just how it's been. And I'd say in the church, particularly our kind of church, our brand of church, deals with the constant temptation to think that we would expand the kingdom better if we, had, if we could compete with corporate, the corporate standard, the professional standard. If people coming in here would be able to experience the product of Christianity in the same way they're accustomed to when they go into a Starbucks or when they go into a fine hospital or a university, that we need to match that standard. And when we do that, you know what we do? We begin to say, we, we preach a gospel, unknowingly, we preach a gospel that is only fit for the well put together. We end up suggesting to the rubble that this is not the place for them. Or we begin to preach a message of uselessness to regular people. I would say this, every, minister, every ministry in our church should have something wrong with it. It should have something wrong with it. If we're a growing church, it's, there should be something, because what is the building material of God's kingdom? But people who are being redeemed and revived out of the ashes. It's always a temptation. All right, let's keep reading. All of this works because we're really not the only ones building the wall. The Lord's with us. Look at verses 7 through 14. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashtadites heard that they were repairing the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the, the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. Notice, by the way, it starts with just Sambalat and Tobias. Then it's Sambalat, Tobias, and the Arabs. Now it's Sambalat, Tobias, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashtadites. You see? The more prominent and established God's people are, the more of a threat they are. Okay, so they get very concerned. Verse eight, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. 
And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Do you hear it? We have a same God and a common fate. That's the spirit in the story. People are coming, coming to them saying, we are in serious trouble. We are in serious trouble. And Nehemiah says to all of them, we have the same concern. We share the same concern and we have the same God. I want you to note the, the, the strategy of the enemy. It shows up in, in like uh, verses 8, 9, and 10. It says that they're going to work themselves in, um, verse 11, and our enemy said they will not know or see us until we come. The notion is because the wall is not built, rather than marshalling a big array of a military and coming against us in the open field, they said we'll just work our way among the people and when they least expect it, we'll draw our swords and strike them down. Why? Because there's no wall. That's the concern. And I'd say that's almost always the way the enemy works, by the way. That's almost, that is his classic strategy. He's not going to come right at you. He's going to work to cut you out from the larger body. In God's kingdom, there are members and then there are people who are dismembered. They're cut out. This past year, that's what made this past year so difficult. It's because it was, you could just watch people in the church get dismembered from the body because they're by themselves with no wall and no way to show a shared fate. Discouragement, fear, fatigue, isolation, breakdown. This is the classic strategy of the enemy to one by one dismember you from one another. And when I say member, I don't mean administratively are you a member. I just want to ask you, are you a member or have you been dismembered? That really is the question. Nehemiah says, remember him, we're not alone. And remember each other, we share the same fate. All right, last reading. I'm going to pick up in 15. Look how it goes down here. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half of them held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. 
I also said to the people at the time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be on guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of, my, of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. I'll just give you two more verses from chapter 6. Chapter 6, 15 kind of summarizes the whole thing. It says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. When, and when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. In other words, a miracle. For 52 days, they're laboring with a sword in one hand and, and stones in the other. At any given moment, they're not taking their clothes off. They're sleeping like refugees in the midst of the city, ready to go to battle, waiting for the trumpet to blow. And they don't have enough soldiers anywhere, but wherever the trumpet blows, they mask themselves there to meet whatever comes on. And in doing so, in 52 days, a bunch of unskilled amateurs rebuild the walls of the city of God. Why? Because they have the same God and they share a common fate. Regular people laboring greatly outside of their gifting, I might add, with a great God and a common fate. I'm going to say it one more time. This is ministry. Regular people laboring greatly, often outside of their gifting, with a great God and a common fate. As we think about this idea, even with communion in mind, or maybe especially with communion in mind, think of the ordinances of the church of God, how they point to a great God and a common fate. Communion is done as a fellowship. Why? Because we collectively... We, the body, this is, Paul says, don't do it if the body's not in harmony. Be of a common mind and spirit when you come to the Lord. When someone gets baptized, it's I have a great God and you're my people. When we dedicate a child, it's before the great Lord and it's among the people. We have a common faith. This is at the heart, communion, right? Communion is the coming together of God's people before him. That's how the gospel is celebrated. If you bow your heads, we'll start to turn our attention to the Lord's table. And <clears throat> I want to ask these questions. Maybe these will help you prepare for taking the Lord's Supper. First of all, I want to ask you about this church is this your wall? I'm not, I'm not concerned about the administrative questions of membership. I'm asking the, the fundamental spiritual questions. Is this your wall? Is Sycamore Hill Church your wall? Do you share our faith? With that, do you want there to be walls engaged? Do you want this city on a hill to be distinct from the land outside of it? Do you want it to be safe from the world outside of it? Do you want there to be a godly order in this church and structure and ministry here that's unlike the world outside of it? Do you want it to be welcoming? Do you want there to be wide open gates that promise 
safety here and welcoming here. What I'm asking is, are you a member or have you been dismembered? Because we, we share a common fate and we have a common Lord. Father, as we, as we bring these questions before you, plus others, Lord, as we clean our hearts and, and approach you, we, we remind ourselves of what you've done, how you have regathered us, how you've revived these stones from a pile of, of ashes and rubble, how you've chosen to, uh, you celebrate approaching a city with a strange wall, varied, strange wall that some might say even if a fox stepped on it, it would fall over. But somehow you have built a marvelous city inside of it. And so we yield to this good news, Lord. You are the righteous son of the living God. And you've shed your blood so that we would have a common hope. One Lord, one God, one Christ, and we'd have a common faith. We pray this in Jesus' name.